0: The mayfly is up and the excitement is palpable
1: wherever you are in ireland the lakes and rivers are soon to be hatching with mayfly soon
0: and to help you improve your catch rate this season we've used a mayfly tactics masterclass with international angler guide and renowned tire jackie Mann.
1: if you want to learn about setup tactics conditions and flies then head over to www.irelandonthefly.com forward slash masterclass where you can find out all the details to access the recording and jackie's notes
0: If you want to catch that difficult fish or try out new tactics, then this masterclass is for you.
1: Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. Myself and Tom mentioned some time ago that we wanted to start a bit of a book club here on the podcast to discuss the best Irish fly fishing books. And so this week we're kicking it off with an episode on Kingsmill Moore's A Man May Fish, the seminal work on fly fishing in Ireland, of course. And to help us give context and background to Kingsmill Moors, we spoke to Patrick Gageby, a barrister and fly angler who also co-wrote the foreword to an edition of O'Gorman's The Practice of Angling in Ireland. Patrick reveals some fascinating first-hand insights about Kingsman Moor and the places he fished, and it's well worth listening to. But first, Tom, where do you place a man-made fish in the pantheon of Irish fly-fishing books?
0: I have to say, it has to be up there at number one, without a, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, if you look at how many times all, the two of us in the podcast, with whoever we've on, I, I've, I've mentioned it, and... Uh, and we have such a broad range of people to interview. But it's, it's you know, we were talking about it in fly tying. We're talking about it in sea trout fishing. We're talking about it in, um, you talk about gillies with Jamesy. You know, it just covers so much. It's like, uh, particularly with trout fishing, all right, I, will, I will say that, but particularly with trout fishing, it covers nearly everything
1: for the Irish trout, the Irish trout angler. When did you first get your first copy of it?
0: Well, it was interesting because we were discussing it. I'd say why afterwards. But the copy I have is an original, and it was my dad's. Uh, it's from 1960s. It one of the first print, first editions by Harris of London or something. And uh, my dad, it's signed at the bottom. And I signed it then when I was third year in school because I, I had it in school with me. So i I've, I've sitting on a Tom Sullivan third year. So I that meant I would have started reading that back in 1982.
1: So did he give it to you, or did you rob it for school?
0: I stole it, <laughs> I, without a doubt. But the only thing was, my Dad loved his fishing. wasn't a great book reader, and uh, my well, and particularly with fishing, more into mechanics and things like that, and cars. Definitely read up about that. But the odd copy of trout and salmon, the odd bit. But um, so it wasn't missed. I mean, to be honest here, yeah, and another one we got, they had an original copy of Barker's, An Angler's Paradise.
1: What and year was that? I, yeah, that was
0: 1927, which I still have. And whatever way it was printed, some of the pages were still joined. I actually had to cut them. You know, the, they'd fold over and they were still joined. So that'll just tell you, well, wasn't a huge, huge book reader. Liked his fiction, no doubt, and knew all of Kingsman Moore and everything. Don't think you ever met him or anything. Paul would have been more Ina and Kingsman Moor would have been fishing Costello at times, even though there, there might have been a small crossover. But um, yeah, no, anyway, yeah, hands up, I stole it.
1: <laughs> and I presume you were there like either in the evening time or in the back of class kind of flicking through, was it? Like? Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: very interesting one about uh, back of class. I, I'm going to digress a bit, Well, Roger O'Neill and myself, uh, Roger comes fishing with me every May all the time. Uh But we're in the back of Irish class once <laughs> And Fred the head uh, Came The Irish teacher uh, Fred Murray And he spotted us at the back That we had this glossy mag And he came storming down Ripped the magazine off us And looked at it as if to say I've got you And like I think with the glossy mag I think I know what he expected
1: What is like, this filth? What <laughs> is
0: filth? And it was trout Fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> but some guy holding a big rainbow out of the cover and he looked at the cover and he looked at the two of us and more said god you're sad i <laughs> threw it back so yeah so needless to say i never brought man made fish into class but i did bring trout fishermen
1: <laughs> Good. and and tell me this at home like you say there was, was, was there growing up there wasn't a huge amount of fly fishing books on the shelves like
0: Ah, there
1: wouldn't have been a huge amount. No, there
0: wouldn't have been a huge amount. No, just a couple, just a couple. So, yeah, know I started it then. So I started reading at 15. When did you get into it?
1: King's Memoir was, well, see, it was really only when I first started taking up fly fishing was about 15 years ago. And as I said, there was two books that was kind of basically recommended mm-hmm. to me. One was Peter O'Reilly's Fly Fishing in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And then the other book, that, the name that kept coming up was Kings Memoir's Man Made Fish. And mm-hmm. um, for me, what a, really wetted my appetite was. And I think it's for some people maybe well, you can either pick up everything between the flies, the you know, the the the, the, the kind of scientific side or the kind of cultural romanticism of, of the fishing. And for me it was the stories of fly fishing at the west. Like you know I, mm. I've always had a grow, my mum's family's from from outside Orinmore, so I've always had a grow for the, the Connemara in the west. And it was like I said, it was like harking back to and I think I think I was probably naive enough at that stage when I first started going, "Jesus, the fishing, I have to get out there. It sounds brilliant." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not realizing it was it had changed quite a bit since the 1960s. <laughs> it's one of those I haven't always I always dip in and out of it I find. Um Yeah, I, it's like, one
0: that you can dip in
1: and out of, isn't it? Yeah, and even like just in advance of talking to Patrick, like, I think I just fixed it. in about 24 hours. I was able to just, and it it's easy reading, you know, and it's, it's the best compliment I think you can always give to a writer. It's just, it's easy reading. Like, you
0: know? Well, that's very interesting. I, I, and Patrick says this when we're talking to him, like, and I was just about to say to you, it's, it's such an easy read. But then when he goes, he talks about, you know, on the legal side of him and how some of the judgments and what he wrote was so clear and precise, you know, and stood the test of time. Yeah. I think that's really interesting, but I think that harkens back. I mean, not really surprised to hear that when we talk about how easy it is to read and how he's so vivid and gets across the likes of Jamesy or the likes of fishing Caracalla, uh in the Costello system.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, and it's. I'd recommend just listening to that, and for, for the Patrick Gageby interview, it's really interesting and. Um, because of Patrick's own um, legal background. So he was a, he, and it's well worth listening to that part of it where he's able to talk about Kingsman Moore's legal influence and his standing within legal circles. And like you said, there's a lot, this crossover there in terms of kind of his own um, clarity of writing and clarity of thought, I think, which kind of which all helped it. So there's some I, for me, actually, there was really interesting parts from Patrick that I don't think I've heard anywhere else, just specifically from from the kind of legal aspect. And it gives you kind of a more rounded kind of, I think, picture uh, an insight into Kingsmill Moore uh, yep. as as well. Like
0: I definitely felt that because I was saying like, you know, didn't really wasn't too sure of what type of a, a man Kingsmill Moore was, you know, a fantastic writer. But he definitely uh you know, through some of the things like the nomination when he was going to the Senate and things like, you know, um really it was lovely. It gives it, it like gave me another uh, another view or an insight into Kingsmill Moore, the man himself.
1: Definitely, definitely. Um, sure. Look, let's hear from um, Patrick now. Um, and I first asked him why *A Man May Fish* remains so influential and important over sixty years since first being published.
2: I think there's really two things, and they're quite different things. Firstly, Kingston Moore was a very thoughtful fellow, and uh, he did a lot of uh, thought about flies and fly colours. Why a particular fly might work here and work there. Was there, for instance, uh, such a thing as a uh, a great Irish fly? And, of course, there really was. And he was the progenitor of uh, many of them, uh, the Bumbles and whatnot. Um, but he, he had a very inquiring mind. And he didn't just read stuff and then regurgitate it. So he observed, he was a very good uh, observer of uh, fish, fisheries, but also of people. So there's a very substantial amount in the um, book about why do fish take, why does the fly work, why does this fly work and not that fly. And it's all, you know, against a background in which there's an extraordinary amount of, uh, um, I'm going to say unscientific um, uh, um, storytelling in uh, fly fishing. But this was actually a very, rigorous mind at work and he was very interested in anything to do with fish fishing and fisheries but the second part of the book i find is much the more charming is his stories of fishing not not that he he he, he didn't recount how many fish he caught or how many fish he lost but the fact that he took such enormous joy in the irish countryside and anybody who lives in a town or a city like I do, and perhaps you do as well, uh, knows how wonderful it is and was to get out of town and suddenly to be uh, on, a, on a lake beside a river, night or day or whatever, in a completely different world. And, you know, he really captured that. And he had an enormous love of the Irish countryside. You'll also notice when you read the book in its non-technical forms, he's very careful about the place names, which he loved. I mean, he loved the Connemara, um, the, the lakes of the plain, as he called them, for He talks about Shanawana, Carrick, Karakillewalya, and all that sort of stuff. And for a man who was uh, you know, educated, or secondary school anyway, in uh, Marlborough in England, he was... Uh, a man who lived through the birth of the state and was a very, very uh, committed and interested part of the state. So really for me, there are the pen pictures of the places that I myself then went to because he had spoken of them. The Slaney, I fished where he used to fish, in fact, where his mill house was and where everything was washed away in the big flood. Um, I've fished uh, Delphi at a time before it was anything like it currently is. And you know you could rent the entire fishery for 150 pounds a week. Um, and you had to share the river with canoeists, poachers, <laughs> everybody else. Um, I haven't fished some of the, the cashless uh, uh, fisheries and things like that, but why is it important? Because I think it is two quite different strands. Firstly, a very, very beautiful romantic part and an incredibly practical one. So that's why I
1: place it. Yeah, and it's, it, it occurred to me just when I was rereading again, and I've, written, I've read it so many times, but it, it, yeah, that's what occurred to me exactly was that you have the scientific, very specific, you know, yeah. stuff you can learn, and then you're taken into the kind of literary romanticism of kind of the countryside. So you've got the, the both. And I, I often think if the book was just one, had only just been the scientific part, it would have been good. If yeah. it had been just the romantic literary part, it would have been good. But the sum of its parts, I think, is what really kind of lifts the book as a whole.
2: Yeah, that's true. And the, the other thing is um, he references quite a lot um, J.R. Harris or Dick Harris, um, you know, the angler's entomology. And, you know, that's a very big part of Irish um, history and uh, fly fishing because it's a, Dick Harris's book is a fine book and I remember him very well from Garnet and Keegan's and he was a, a really wonderful um, uh, old fella and he knew his stuff. Uh, if you said to him, I'm thinking of fishing the Minolte stream, he'd say, well, you should go to this place and that place and uh, you need to push three flies on the cast and he gives you the the size, the order. Uh, and all of those things, and he was usually right as well.
1: Tom, uh, as Connemara man, reading about these places, like, does it just stir the heartstrings when you're reading it? Like, you know, does it evoke something? Well, it's
0: very interesting that you say that, Patrick. About you know, you got to fish the Slaney places. Yeah. I remember the first time. I, I've only fished it once. I actually went up to Shannonona, to fish yeah. it. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to fish it. Was because of that chapter in A Manly Fish. Did you bring um, your ham sandwiches? I didn't. And no, no, sure. I had mucilin at that stage. He didn't have mucilin. That was his fault. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that the grease line and the, the ham sandwiches. Yeah, but um, all those things. And, and it's, it's funny that you should say that it's exactly what I've always thought because I've reread it a bit and I've read it so many times just for this. And I was just looking at the, you know, that he got a, fr- a photographer friend to take infrared photography, to, yeah. you know, of when he was trying to perfect the perfect black body for the Kingsman, yeah. And yet, then he talks as I'm doing a piece and I'm, I may use it of night fishing on a stream going into Polifuga Reservoir. Yeah, it goes that that bit of night fishing, you know, where you're almost one foot into the, as he says, the land of the the gods, and then you're brought back, but you look back into the the the, the bleached sand. Where there might be uh, the what is it the hoof mark of goats?
2: No, uh, no, 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 no. Sorry, I'm going, to re- I'm going to read it. Yeah, it was- Page forty. Yeah. yeah. He says the value of night fishing mm. is as a sedative to fretted nerves and a tired brain. A sedative, yet something more—a portal of escape from the instancy of the present. As the night deepens, the river takes command. Its voice mounts. Filling the valley, rising to the rim of the hills. No longer one voice, but a hundred. Time and place are dissolving. The centuries have lost their meaning. Timelessness is all. One foot is crossing the invisible frontier which bounds the land of the old gods. Mm -hmm. Then comes the whistle of an otter, the bark of a fox, and you're back in the world of sentiency. Almost you fear to turn less black upon the moon-blanched sand, there should be the hoof marks of a goat. And yeah. uh, I, that I had remembered uh, from the first and second and tenth time I read it. Yeah, because yeah. We've all been there, and certainly if you've ever fished in Connemara for white trout on a warm summer's evening, uh, uh, there's often nearly every one of those things present, including the odd goat.
1: This is the thing
0: now, because I'm just wondering, because. Is it just purely a goat, or here's what I'm thinking? You know the old the old Irish pishroke about you know the devil was at the dance hall, right? Yes, yes, I do. Yes, and, yes. and that was all that was left when they looked was there was uh, goat prints where he had stood because the devil has uh, cloven hooves as
2: feet. It might also be Pan who has goat's feet. Pan, is it, who right? You see, it, Yeah, uh, it's so, a possibility. But the thing is, Kingsville Moor was. Uh, very well educated and very well read, but he didn't parade it, you know. Mm. Um, it's nice there. So there's a, a, at least two constructions.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, but I think that's, and that's what you just touched upon between the first and the second part. I think that's why so many people like
2: it.
1: Yeah. It to different, different, uh, yeah different strands of the I, actually can I it's funny that was one of the thumbed um pages I had
0: uh,
1: <laughs> another bit of, just speaking of the fairies and all that kind of stuff it's um it's about Shanabona um yeah. it says um uh where they toiled up the bare granite ribs of the first range the sun shone hotter than ever all the color had been bleached out of the countryside the slippery gra- grass had faded to an ash gray, and over the rich blacks and browns of the peat, a dr- dry gray scurf had spread. The heather was prematurely over, while large patches showed withered and dead. We dared not traverse the slope, for we were following a compass line and had to go straight over everything. Up we went and down we went to the valley where the yellow river, a noisome, oily snake of stagnancy, gave us some trouble in crossing. And then at last up onto the final plateau beyond the crest of which we hoped to find our goal. And then he goes on, but there's a line I love. And it goes, my companion reminded me that we were now in the core of the haunted country and probably on the fairy high road from Cara road to Ross's. What we were hearing might be fairy music, a theory, which at first seemed strengthened when we realized the sound really was coming out of the earth under our feet. Mm. Yes, indeed. It just brings you there, doesn't it? Like, you know, it's just. And I think part of the other, like Tom, what we were saying there in terms of the lyricism and the the, the poetry of the lines is it also harks back to, doesn't it? A kind of a lost fishing Eden in many respects, you know, that.
2: Yes, and that's a phrase he uses uh, when he talks about the end of um, the two hostelries in um, Delphi and in Old Head when Alec Wallace. Yes, sort of uh, got tired of the regulations from the tourist board and sort of packed up everything and went off to Afghanistan. And he ends that chapter with saying another little Eden had vanished. But, of course, the Eden he he's describing is really the great company. It's not just that the fishing was good. It's that the company was good and the evenings were pleasurable and there might be stimulating and interesting uh, uh, talk, you know, and one link I have to that is that he mentions frequently his fishing companion, Noel Gogarty, who is the son of uh, Oliver St. John Gogarty. And Noel was in the, sa- was in the same um, line of business that I am. So I got to know him a bit and would often sit in the coffee room and ask him about Delphi in the old days, fishing here, uh, Kingsmill Moor, and stuff like that. And like Kingsmill um uh, I think Noll had been possibly educated in Britain, but he certainly spoke with a very a very polite accent if I can use that <laughs> phrase and again that's um you know would have been part of i suppose uh uh Kings Millmore's, um background i mean he had um he had both um, been educated in um England but had subsequently then uh, gone into Trinity College and become auditor of the College Historical Society. Ended up being a senator for about three or four years. Very progressive in his day. I mean, one of the things that's noted <coughs> that's noted particularly um, about him is that the second time he stood for the uh, Senate in I think forty four. All of his nomination papers, he, 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 he sought to be signed by women, which was, I think, uh, uh, quite unusual in 1940s Ireland. So, um, you know, he, I mean, it wasn't just about uh, old fellows sitting around uh, uh, moaning about <laughs> the old days.
1: And, and, and interesting, actually, he does credit um, his wife. Um... Very
2: much so, yes
1: for pushing him to write this book in the first place, that she mm. yes. basically the one. And then, of course, I, what I love, it, this is to the memory of my wife, who made so many fears groundless and so many dreams a reality.
2: Yeah, and, uh, you know, he does reference the fact that uh, uh, she seems to have spent a lot of time with him in the rowing boat. <laughs> yeah, Because <laughs> there is mention that she would be sitting in the uh, uh, prow wrapped in very heavy blankets. And can, can you imagine, uh, you know, after... De- uh, hour seven or eight of, a, of a, a large bit of rain coming
1: across the Corrib. Very patient yeah. I have to say.
2: Dedication. And he was also, because
0: I uh, for this I was looking up, I could never I never really garnered what Saracen was. And then I looked up Saracen which is under the uh, uh, the original print, you know, it's by by uh, T.C. Kingsville Moore and it's under Saracen. And he wrote a book of poetry under that name in
2: 1921. Oh. Yes as <coughs> a uh, when he had just come back from the war, finished being the auditor of the the, the HIST, as it's uh, called in Trinity, yeah. and was just starting his uh, career at the bar. Um, uh, I haven't read it, I would have to say, but I have read the poetry that's to be found in A Man May Fish. And yeah. uh, from the beginning to the end, I think it's really um, uh, great, inclu- including the bit... Um, Requiescam Yeah which suggests that his kindly spirit is looking on where the angler treads along the river What what? the picture I'm getting here is
0: actually uh, may have had a preconceived notion of of Kingsman Moor um, that it's not really sticking to it I mean when you say with his nomination papers um, Yes Yeah that he he seems to have been um, I, I, for some reason I want to say this right but I'd always thought that he might have been a bit of a stick in the mud, right? Yes. Uh, You know, and I've I've tried to put as well, you know, but um, obviously I don't think he was,
2: was he? No, and, you know, you would have thought, just looking at a very cursory um, view, that perhaps with all of his background and stuff like that, he'd be rather stuffy. Um, Mm. But actually he wasn't. And uh, um, the Dictionary of Irish biography Entry is written by um, Jerry Hogan, who's a judge of the Supreme Court, and I mean, he 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 notes that you know, I mean, Kingsmill Moore came back from the war, and within two or three years, the state had been founded, and he was uh, credited with you know being able to adapt and change from uh, the United Kingdom into the Free State and stuff like that, and he was very engaged. I mean, he was a senator for four years. He he was a correspondent for the Irish Times when he was quite young. And he had quite a broad practice, uh, which is a bit unusual. Um, he didn't just do land cases or accident cases. I mean, he did a couple of um, murder cases as well. And in, in the Senate, you know, he was thoughtful and civilized. One of the things, for instance, that he that his references having spoken particularly about in 1946 uh, in one of the debates, he spoke about prison conditions, um, uh, referencing back some of the IRA prisoners, sorry, well, only one or two, I think, who had gone on hunger strike uh, during the Second War in Ireland. So, I mean, he, you know, he was, he was not, you might say, a typical son of, the, um, of a, a Church of Ireland clergyman.
1: I, I get the sense that what he could, whatever he turned his hand to, he you know he did well and he succeeded in whatever he could have put his mind to.
2: Oh yeah, he was very very much one of the leading uh, judges, and he, his was an important voice because at the time there was a convention that there would always be somebody on the Supreme Court who wasn't Roman Catholic, as people said in those days. Uh, and it was a convention, Uh, um, uh, I don't think uh, anybody bothers with that now, but at the time uh, he was, but he was very much an an engaged man, engaged in the country, um, and uh, you know, a a, a very fine judge, perhaps one of the best amongst about five or six in the last 100 years, the best five or six people for really clear writing and thinking, and (laughs) You know, not full of false learning, like, you know, uh, shovel loads of Shakespeare, that sort of stuff, or even Latin.
1: <laughs> is there a sense nearly, and this is very unusual to say when we're talking about a fly fishing, um, yeah, um that nearly a man may fish has kind of overshadowed his actual other real accomplishment in life, that he's known for a man may fish, as opposed to the legal side of things.
2: Yeah, well, um, I mean, I have the benefit of being uh, both a lawyer, and uh, I used to fly fish quite a lot, so I'm quite happy to have a, a fortune each camp. <laughs> no, he was. Uh, I mean, his judgments were particularly uh, uh, known for being careful and that sort of stuff. You know.
1: And, and I also like the fact as well as that you're saying, that like, he came from that kind of say. Actually, where did he grow up? Just I know we went to school oh, in the-
2: South Dublin. South okay. Dublin. Uh, yeah, he was the the the, the father. Um, uh, was uh, the head of the um, Church of Ireland training college um, which would have been for clergy and teachers and the the he was brought up in a big house on Mount uh, just beside Mount Anvil um, so they, they, they wouldn't have been particularly prosperous but you know they certainly weren't poor if you're sending your son to Marlborough.
1: Yeah. But he, he seemed to, like you said, he straddled that kind of divide, didn't he? Like the, the, the kind of the coming of the free state. Yeah. The end of one year, the beginning of another, you know, he was able to be, you know, fishing in the big house. Yeah. And hanging out with Jamesy. And yeah. you know, he, he was able to kind of converse, whether it was the Lords or the, you know, the, the peasants, whatever, you know, that he was able to kind of traverse that whole, um, that whole spectrum really like,
2: Oh, very much so. And, uh, you know, when he, he talks about, uh, visiting the, the, I think it's Kinloch house, uh, on Loch Melvin and he's talking about the, you know, the, the, the old man of the house who had, uh, who was probably born of the, the 1820s or 1830s or something like that. Um, and you know, that's the end of the old order. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I mean, there there is some regret for it, but it's 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 only in the personal way, you know.
1: Tom, um, there's another thing that strikes me as well about the book, as well, and I personally think why, as well, as we're so fascinated by it is, he, like you said, he's mentioning, you know, the Lord of the House from born in the eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties, yeah, hark back to that past, you know, and yet he's still in the twentieth, very twentieth century, and he's seeing the decline begin. It's almost mm. like that window into the kind of that changing moment where you no, know, the good old days are gone and he recognizes it as well. Um, and Tom, like we spoke um, Patrick to Joe Crane, but Joe was talking about, obviously, you know, the kind of what he remembers of the heyday of the sea trout um, fishing. Yeah. Um, and Tom, isn't it very much? And like, you get that in the book of man, my fish where he's talking about the numbers of fish that could be caught. Yeah. and Even he's decrying, what was like twenty, thirty, forty years ago? Like,
0: it's yeah, it, it is. It really, you know, because he he witnesses as, and we talked to Joe, and Joe witnessed it. But you know, he talks about the blue ribbon fisheries, you know, mm. and and going back and like, well, you wouldn't, would you get even a quarter? You know, if you got a quarter of what is it, forty sea trout, isn't it,
1: To be yeah. in the
0: blue ribbon club? And they had to be good sea trout. Like, if you got a quarter of that on any of those lakes these days you'd be considering yourself to have one heck of a day,
2: you know? Yeah, and if you kept him, you'd be in jail. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I have, uh, I mean, I only really started fishing about 1980. So I just saw really the end of the stuff around uh, Loughina and Derry Clare and that. But I just have wonderful memories of, you know, going out, setting up tackle at about 10 o'clock, waiting for it to get dark, hearing you know the way the sea trout uh, you can sometimes jump straight out just and you know there's a school passing through uh, I mean that was just wonderful and then go off for a, a, a drink in I don't know Ballinhenge Castle or the or you know uh, Della McCauley's uh, I was just going to
0: say Della's yeah. you've been in Della's yeah
2: oh yeah no I said and I was very friendly with Della right yeah. until she died um she was uh, she was a great angler. There's a rock actually in the bay below her her old cottage called Della's Rock, because I mean she was fishing since she was a sort of a slip of a girl, really. You yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, just fantastic.
1: Patrick, tell me, um, yeah. So you grew up in Dublin yourself as well. So how did you get into fly fishing, and what's your own background? Doing?
2: Yeah. Well, my my father did a tiny bit. My um, brother did quite a bit more. But actually, it was my grandfather, who was called Sean Lester, who um, uh, was um, was High Commissioner for the League of Nations in Danzig and then uh, worked in Geneva during the the Second War. But he retired. He loved fishing, but got uh, uh, got no access to it for many years. So he bought the old station house in recess. So as you travel west past choices on your left-hand side is the old station house. And that was um, the, the railway finished in 36, maybe 37. So he bought there with my grandmother in 1953. And uh, he then died in 59, actually driving up the Aina Valley <laughs> on a June afternoon. Um, and I actually have memories from the late fifties of being there and he was a very keen angler. So he had the fishing on Glendalough, the Lahana Locks, a bit of the Recess river and a bit of the river that uh, goes out from Glendalough uh, into Derry Clare. Um, so that I would actually think uh, was the original <laughs> spark, as it were.
1: And, and, and is that where you, you loved fishing, The kind of down the west, down Connemara, that was your kind Very of- much so,
2: yeah. I mean, I spent... Uh, nearly every weekend that I could and when I could get longer I did and I'd hop in the car at five o'clock on a Saturday morning to fish the Terry Clare butts <laughs> later you know uh, so that and Della's, you know the sort of um, uh, comradely nature of the thing it wasn't particularly posh uh, neither the fishing nor the, um, nor the uh, uh, mm-hmm. Della's place but it was great fun. <laughs> no? that, that, and, that's an understatement. Uh, yeah. And yeah. it was, you know, so th- this was my um, sort of uh, Delphi or Alec Wallace sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, not, not not quite the same level of um, of sort of uh, Nobel laureates around the dinner table. But, you know.
1: Did King's Memoir's reputation precede him as an angler? Like a... You know, by that stage, like that. Oh
2: yeah. yeah, 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 definitely. And he mentions a couple of his other colleagues who were uh, uh, um, well-known um, uh, fishers. And clearly, Kingsmill Moore had also um, read O'Gorman uh, mm-hmm. because um, uh, he talks about the old um, uh, uh, beets on the Shannon uh, um, fished around around that time and all that sort of stuff. You know. Um, I was
0: just going to ask you that. That was just leading into that, Patrick. So we have probably um, Kingsman Moore, I would say, like probably the best Irish angling author without without a doubt. Who else would you put up there with them?
2: Well, I mean, I still have a great draw for um, Um, O'Gorman. I mean, any man who can like O'Gorman. Now, I haven't actually read it since uh, Kevin McKenna and myself uh, did the foreword. What's that, 30 years ago, is it? Yeah, 30 Uh, years ago. (laughs) 29,
0: actually. 1993. I have it here beside me. Okay.
2: but uh, there's a description there of where they go to either a tavern or a tent and they get drunk and they... um, They break all the um, crockery in the place and they are ashamed in the following morning, you know. Um, (laughs) That I find wonderful. But also his, um, I think it's O'Gorman's fierce opinions, you know. He strongly is against this and that. And, you know, Kingsmill Moore had a bit of that and I I would share a bit of it. Uh, He talks about the melancholy art of dapping, (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> and you know had he's no he's, time he's, for it
2: and had he's no time good, for it. most things but dapping um i i think he would have a higher opinion of somebody who was gaffing fish under a bridge <laughs> yeah, than, than yeah those who dap, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, but, <laughs> is, there's two things you had to um two things you had to do for dapping which i've forgotten but he said i might add a third don't fall asleep <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah
2: yeah And sorry the the, the other books um a particularly beautiful book. At one stage, I had two of them. Uh, the Earn, It's Legends and Fly Fishing. Roland's, not sure. Uh, Newland? Newland, Newland sorry, excuse yeah. me. I've never read it. Is it good? Um, I, again, I haven't read it in an awful long time. It's, a mo- yeah. it's one of the most beautiful books ever produced because on the front cover, there is a beautiful um, uh, uh, engraving uh, uh, on the leather of uh, a fairy fly as it was called uh, which was to symbolize the um, most effective fly on the urn when it was one of the best salmon rivers in the united kingdom you know yeah. uh, and that's an amazing book but again suffers from the um a, a little bit of a sort of a an anglocentric view so uh the the peasantry are interesting but clearly of a different cast. But there again, the book was written in what 1860 or something like that.
0: I remember you actually said that in your foreword that you did for the O'Gorman, um, that basically it was the first book that was really written by an Irish author. Yeah. That up yeah. to then you had Belton, you uh, yeah. a couple of others, and basically they were um, tourists as such. And yeah. uh, looking with a bit of um, looking down on the on the...
2: On
1: the peasant side. yeah, yes. yes, yeah, yes, yes. But um, I suppose that is partly then the, the the kind of attraction, then, isn't it, of a, of a man may fish because you do get that sense of this is a learned man at the top of his game, but very much from an Irish perspective, like real pride in in mm. in, in what he's doing. One thing we haven't mentioned yet, you know it's obviously a big part of the book, is his flies, the influence he had. And yeah. talked talk to us there about, you know, the flies.
0: Well, because uh, I was just going to bring it up. I mean, I think, and I don't know many, we've done quite a few podcasts even this summer. And I think it's, we keep going back to it for various things. And uh, the last podcast we did just before this was with uh, Jackie Mahan, Fly Tire. And he's talking about dying. And, of course, we brought up the one about the, the j- jackass, jackass. You're right. Yeah, yeah, Rogan's. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rogan's. And but it it's just back into that, that we're always going back to him for certain things. And for fly time, we really, you know, I mean, like the Bumbles. I mean, yeah. I, they're still catching fish. They're yeah. still catching, uh, not just the odd fish, lots of fish. OK, there's a bit of variant. Guys might be throwing um. Hopper legs onto them might be putting a tag of fluorescent fluorescence on the back, but ostensibly it's still the same pattern in the middle.
1: You know, it's and it is like was it you telling me though, Tom? In the book, is um, I'm trying to remember. He he mentions the English flies are like uh, soldiers uniforms. I think was that the
0: soldier soldiers on parade, soldiers, soldiers in uniform on parade, and they yeah, are, yeah. basically what what he's saying is what we're saying that when you hold them up to the light, they're opaque, right? Yeah. When you hold an Irish fly up to the, to the light, uh, it's translucent. The light comes through it and it starts, it, it takes on a whole different look. The colours mingle, all the different colours. And that, that's what he was saying was the beauty of it. He says, well, the opaque ones may work on the point because I was just looking at it again. He says the English flies, he said, could probably match the Irish flies. Once you went up to the droppers, you had to have the Irish flies on, he said.
1: Tell us, Patrick, just in terms of um, the kind of, I suppose, looking on an overall, like we, we've mentioned how there's so many bits that you can take and that people are attracted to. It's the, you know, whether it's the science, whether it's the flies, whether it's the characters, um, you know, whether it's the stories. Um, do you think we'll be still talking about um, a man may fish in 50, 100 years' time, like in terms of its influence?
2: Oh, gosh, I hope so, because uh, what really... Um, I was surprised uh, in uh, I I have my own copy of the second edition but um, I just put his name in on the various um, uh, booksellers you know, eight books and things like that my goodness, there's an awful lot of the uh, third or the most recent uh, um, uh, edition out there and seems to be a very popular book and uh, you know uh, I mean, I think anybody who fishes, you know, really, really likes the countryside. I mean, nobody else is going to sit on a boat for six or eight hours on the lake, except an angler or, you know, some type of nutter. Um, or, or do the same, But you know, in what passes for the Irish Spring. You know, one of those days when there's hail and rain and then a northwest wind and you're out looking for a salmon in March or April, you know, uh, it is, it is. And nobody else goes to the places that uh, anglers go. Thankfully,
1: and and I think like I thank everyone who pointed it in my direction when I first started fly fishing because it just brings you to this world that you kind of go, wow, you know, this is this is what it could have been like, you know, or could be like, you know, in your kind of wildest dreams, yeah, and it really sucks you in.
0: While we're on the other books there, and I just bring it up because. um Another, it's almost like a contemporary at the time, was Fishing and Thinking, Patrick,
2: yeah, Dr. A. Loose.
0: Yeah, I was about yeah, to
2: say that, yeah, because, yeah. Um, I mean, they were both very good um, uh, um, thinkers and for Loose, uh, Loch Conn was the big place. He used to fish out of uh, mm. Clowns with, I think, Pat Kelly. And he has all the stories from um, uh, uh, Loch Conn, But I think... L- L- luce's uh, luce was uh, a great expert on uh Berkeley and philosophy and that sort of stuff he was actually i remember seeing him he was quite ancient by the time i was in college and he would occasionally totter across the uh
1: right the, 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 yeah the front
2: track. but that yeah. is actually a really fine book
1: patrick it's been absolutely fascinating um just talking about it, any excuse to talk about it, a man, may fish in case in my fishing. It's just, I love it. It's great, like, and especially these winter nights. You know, this is what you want. Um, you've told us a little bit about your own kind of fishing, um, career. Yeah. Do you have a memorable fish? We ask it of every guest at the end. Do you have a memorable fish? That sounds every. Oh
2: well, I, I obviously remember my first salmon, which was quite late. It was in nineteen eighty six. Um. Uh, and that was uh, at Greenpoint uh, on the um, Banhench system, just at the bottom of Derry Clare. But actually, the fish I remember most about is the one that I am most ashamed of, because I, I was on Corrib with a friend of mine, uh, who had introduced me to Corrib, knew quite a lot, you know, around Port Karen. Uh, the day was very, uh, there was very little wind. We went across uh, the, the lake towards, I think, in and we were on the way back, and it was absolutely flat calm. So he said, "Listen, throw out a trolling rod." So um, uh, I, I threw out the spoon or whatever it was on it, and in ten minutes I had a ten-pound five-ounce brown trout. Now, I should say, not only is dapping the melancholy art—you <laughs> could say the same for. <laughs> Trolling if we want to be snobbish about such things. Oh, I agree. The last the last <laughs> time I've uh, trolled, and that was I think uh, 1988, maybe. No,
1: yeah. double figure though.
2: Double figure yeah. brownie, hey? Yeah, <laughs> I, actually, I
1: think I, I, I think I would go trolling once if I knew I was going to get a double brownie, yeah. double yeah. figure brownie, like yep. so.
0: Yeah, if it's double figure, it's, yeah, it's it's well worth it.
1: Before I let you go, I just want to finish on uh, reading a uh, requiescam and. Kingsmill um wrote this. Do you have it there, Patrick?
2: Yeah, I'm just looking for the page number.
1: Yeah, um, I'd love you to, if we could finish on that. Yeah. I spoke yeah. about Kingsmill Moore's writings, and to me, this is... Like, to come at the end of, you know, 200-odd pages of you know, pure brilliance. Yeah,
2: I have it here. Will I read, oh, will I read the whole lot? Yes, yeah,
1: please do. Please do.
2: Okay. Bear my body when I die, far from men and let it lie by a salmon river. Where the larches troop their ranks, And above the grand banks, silver birches shiver. Stay not, stranger, passing by, For decorous lament or sigh, Where I rest beside you, Go, my brother, cast your line With a craft that once was mine, And good luck betide you. There, who knows, I still may ply, O'er the stream a phantom fly For a midnight capture, And if heaven attends my wish, bring to bank a ghostly fish in a ghostly rapture. Requiescam.
1: Sinead. Sinead. Patrick Gageby. Thank you very much for your time. It's been uh, fantastic chatting to you.
2: Likewise. Good luck. Bye. I thank to Patrick
0: Gageby for joining us on the show. And don't forget to rate, review and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from.
1: Plus, you can keep up to date on on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram. And myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland.
0: The Mayfly is up and the excitement is
1: palpable. Wherever you are in Ireland, the lakes and rivers are soon to be hatching with Mayfly soon.
0: And to help you improve your catch rate this season, we've used a Mayfly Tactics Masterclass with international angler, guide, and renowned tire, Jackie Mann.
1: If you want to learn about setup, tactics, conditions, and flies, then head over to wwwirlandontheflycom forward slash masterclass, where you can find out all the details to access the recording and Jackie's notes.
0: If you want to catch that difficult fish or try out new tactics, then this masterclass is for you.